This is the Center for Strategic and International Studies Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. It's made possible by Citigroup. So thank you all for being here. Um, you know, this is a, we know this is the Smart Women, Smart Power series, um, but today we're going to have a little bit of an, uh, also an offshoot of that, Smart Girls, Smart Power. We've got fifth graders from Stone Ridge right here, including my daughter. Um, and that's all by way of saying we're going to be talking about high level stuff. A few times I'll go a little bit more on their level because we really are in this program. We're all about inspiring women and girls to do their best, uh, to take tough career paths, uh, especially in science and national security and global issues. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure, definitely. Um, may I call you Jeanette? Of course. Of okay, course, yes. Jeanette, here we go. So um, you grew up in Syracuse, New York, and you were one of seven children yes. with a divorced mom. Yes. She did it all by herself. How was that? Well, I mean, as it sounds, it was tough, but um, she was fortunate that Janet and I, I have a twin sister, Janet, and um, Who she, does not look like her. No, we we're fraternal twins. Fraternal. And uh, we, were, we were pretty obedient, um, partly because we saw what happened to our older brothers and sisters when they didn't bring home good grades and, you know, <laughs> when they misbehaved. So my mom really kind of poured herself into Janet and I, being the last two kids. And she encouraged everything we wanted to do. Um, she was a high school graduate, and that was it. She really didn't understand what Janet and I wanted to do. We were kind of oddballs to her, but she never said we couldn't do what we wanted How to do. How were you oddballs? Just because you were so <laughs> studious? Or? We were studious, but I wanted to be an engineer. Um, you know, I remember being a kid and saying, well, uh, you know, I'll become an aerospace engineer. She's like, she did not know what that was. I didn't know either at nine years old. But sounded she said, good. She sounded great, and she's like, okay. And Janet went into um, uh, chemistry and molecular cell biology, and yeah, my mom said, okay, great, and we'll get there. She didn't quite that know how we'd so get there. Impressive. but Well, we had a community that really helped out. You know, my undergrad was a great school. Um, they were really supported, Janet and I, and we you know, graduated from there in four years and then ended up going to University of Maryland. So we had a, a great community in Syracuse that really helped us get through. So let's talk about your interest in space. It also began as a young girl, nine-ish, I believe, like these yeah. girls sitting right here. Exactly. Um, you know, when I was that, I'm a little older, so when I, when I was that age, it was the time when we had uh, men, uh, male astronauts on, on, on the moon. They were arriving on the moon, um, 12 astronauts between um, 1969 and 1972, I believe mm -hmm. it was, actually walked on the moon. Yeah. In your era, wasn't Sally Ride kind of coming along right about then? It First was. woman astronaut. So but, tell us about your interest in space and how she figured into it. Well, it was um, weird because um, I really didn't have a, a lot of knowledge about space. And what happened was my brother came home from college and, you know, my twin sister and I, we're, we're a little, we wanted to make sure he knew that we got really good grades in school. And so he looked at our report cards and he, was got, he said, wow, this is great. You know, maybe you can become an astronaut or, you know, maybe an aerospace engineer or something. And, you know, Janet didn't want to become an engineer or anything like that. And I was the one that said, well, you know, they'll probably never pick me for an astronaut, but I can definitely become an aerospace engineer. 
And so that's kind of how this whole thing got started. But even then, you know, aerospace, you start thinking about all these things um, that you see in the sky. You know, you see the stars, you see the planes, you see all these different things flying. And aerospace is so um, comprehensive. There's so many things, helicopters, there's UAVs now, there's airplanes, there's shuttles, there's rockets. And so aerospace started to really interest me at that age. But what about so. it? Was it the um, how to make things fly, or was it space itself? Well, I think um, with most girls and most um, boys, there's a curiosity about, well, how does that work? It looks so interesting. Well, how does that work? And how can I work on that? How can I make it better? How can I improve that? How can I be involved in that? And I think as a nine-year-old, just thinking of how I can contribute and be a part of that, was the big thing for me. Because Janet and I, we were doing things like, we were doing well in mathematics, so we really didn't have an idea of what engineering would be. And Janet really didn't know, okay, chemistry and biology. You know, she started looking at plants and things like that, and so it kind of snowballed into going into molecular cell biology. And so I think it was more of just a curiosity. And I think girls, like I even see it in my eight-year-old niece, there's a certain amount of curiosity that they want to know everything and they just want to figure it out. And so I that's think, a good thing and they should pull on that string. Oh, definitely. And I think starting at, it really does um, start around the age of nine. When you start planting those seeds in their brain of, you know, well, you know you can become this or you may want to look into this or you may want to think about that. And I do know like my brother saying those words to me stuck with me all those years. And so when I went to undergrad, I had to go into physics because I went to a small Jesuit school. But then I left there in four years, and I said, no, I'm definitely going into aerospace. And, I, and it just stuck with me from, you know, I couldn't shake it. So no matter what I did, I even tried to um, do an internship in pathology when I was in, um, at Lemoyne College. And, you know, one of the professors there, one of the doctors, he um, was doing autopsies. I was 17 at the time. And he invited me in to kind of watch one of these and um, so I watched the autopsy, and after I came out of there, I was definitely sure that I was going to do engineering and not pathology, <laughs> none of that. I didn't want any part of so it. So can you explain like, what it is about engineering that you love? Okay, so there's, there's so many cool things about engineering. First, you get to solve problems. You get to create things. Um, you get to see the end product of like, if you design an airplane and then you see it fly. That is, to me, is gratifying because you were a part of that and you contributed yeah. to making it better. Like even I'm working at Ford Motor Company when we were designing um, different actuators to reduce vibrations into the car. And the experiments that we did, mounting these actuators on the arm, the control arm, and then seeing it actually work, that you actually reduce the vibrations in the car. And so to me, creating and making things better is what I enjoy a lot. So then you took this aeronautical engineering degree into the CIA, and as we just learned, you, you haven't been very um, open about what exactly you did in Iraq, but I'm going to try. Uh, what did you do? Well, uh, so I think, <laughs> well, I think everything is kind of a, a, a complete story in the sense that, you know, working at Ford Motor Company and even going through graduate school as a scientist, you work so hard in a lab and you're doing those things, you're kind of heads down. And so I never thought you know, I would ever be selected as an astronaut, even though in graduate school I had so many friends applying. I even had one friend who actually did get in. But then going to the CIA, you kind of learn that there's another side to being a scientist, and it's an operational side. And I think that's what an astronaut is all about. You're very technical, but then when you go into space, you are the hands 
in the eyes of every scientist that has a project on, on board the space station. And so you're more operational, but the operational aspect also comes from just getting to the space station <laughs> and flying on the Soyuz and all the things that you have to learn in order to get there. So she's very good at not answering it once again. You're a good CIA agent. <laughs> so everything is about being a scientist and yeah, okay. solving problems. Okay. Yes. Um, so then you let's let's move on to NASA. And by the way, this is uh, our great think tank here um, offered some up some numbers. There are 500 astronauts worldwide. Mm -hmm. Of them, 50 are women, and most of them are American. Mm -hmm. And so um, that that's kind of an interesting number. And you were chosen. Uh, tell us about being chosen to become an astronaut. Well, it's interesting because um, I had um, applied because I, w I felt like I was getting older and I would never have another chance to apply. And so I was 38 at the time and um, my friend Leland Melvin, who was in the astronaut corps, called and said, hey, we're accepting applications for the astronaut corps and you should think about applying this year. And I kind of thought about it and it took me about two months to think about it. And um, I finally said, well, you know, I may as well at least give it one shot. And so my advice to everyone who ever even ever thought about applying to the astronaut corps, uh, I say just do it. And you, you can't play if you don't apply and you don't, you don't at least play in the game. And I was quite shocked to find out that I was selected that time. And you I were one would... of 14 members in yep. the 20th NASA class. That's, that's affirmative, yep. That's affirmative, is that yes. <laughs> No, that's, that's correct. <laughs> Astronaut speak, that's great. That's, that's quite an honor. It was, it's definitely a quite an honor. And at the time when I received the call, I mean, it was, it was kind of emotional. Of course, you know, I was a little choked up and um, I said yes. But afterwards, it was, um, it was quite emotional because I went, my mother was in the hospital at the time and I went and told her. And the fact that she was so happy for me was, um, that, that kind of broke the well. And, you know, I just kind of started gushing there because she her thought- Her pride must have been enormous. Oh, it was. And, you know, the fact that she hated everything that I did before and she thought it was very dangerous and she knew that this would be just as bad, but she was very happy <laughs> at that point. So she was extremely glad that um, I got it's it. It's hard not to be proud if your kid's an astronaut, right? Yes. And by the way, speaking of which, there are photos. Yes. Um, you can see her in action uh, with since my mom. you didn't wear your, is your mom? Oh, there's one, well, one picture with my mom in there, yeah. Okay, I'll watch for it yeah. and point it out when it comes up. You didn't wear your astronaut um, <laughs> suit tonight. <laughs> oh, well. You guys didn't ask, so. <laughs> we should have, we should have done it. Next so time. describe your training. So the training you were, the idea was when you joined the NASA class that mm -hmm. it, it would be towards going to the space station, was that? Exactly. Okay, so describe that. Well, we knew that the, space shuttle would be retired around 2011. So we knew that my class would not fly on the shuttle. We were slated to fly on the Soyuz. And so that meant when we came in, we had to do the Russian language. We had and to so just to back up a second for general audience folks, so the Soyuz, now, since the space shuttle's been retired, mm -hmm. the Soyuz is the only, which is Russian built, exactly. is the only way to get humans to the space station that's and back. That's correct, yep. So that, that requires you to go to Star City, Russia. Star City, Russia. Yes. In Kazakhstan. Yes. So what is that like? Well, that's, um, initially it was a little daunting because we were taking classes. It's all in Russian. We do have an interpreter there. But our exams are such that, you know, we're sitting in front of the room like this and we have about a panel of people who quiz you on everything that you're supposed to know, be it on the Russian segment, be it on the Soyuz, uh, the navigation system, the thermal control system. 
and they really quiz you. And so it was, it was quite daunting, but you know, after a while you kind of figure out that the Russians, um, I think they, the way the exams are conducted, they're very fair, but they're very difficult. And so as long as you do your work, they, um, you, know, you have no problem with the exams because they give you all the data ahead of time. You just have to study the information and answer. And once you get through that kind of phase, they kind of develop a, um, you kind of develop a friendship with them. They know you, they know how well you do, they um, kind of expect things of you in that sense. So it's, what about uh, the other parts of the training? Describe oh, the physical. Okay, yeah, like the, the water survival. Stuff. Okay, let's describe Water survival that. is quite interesting because what they do is they put you in the Sokol suit, which is their version of the pumpkin suit that we wear, the orange suit that you see our astronauts wear. They put you in your suit, you put on your helmet, and you get inside one of their Soyuz modules, and it's just the descent module. And it's, it was me, our commander, and Alex Gers. Alex Gers is 6'2", and um, Alexander Semokutayev is probably about 6'1". So it's a very small compartment inside the Soyuz, extremely small. They close the hatch, and you basically, they put you in the water. And what they want to simulate is a water landing during the cold. And so what you have to do while you're in there is you have to take off your Sokol suit and put on all of your winter clothes and then put on a waterproof suit. Oh, jeez. And um, all three of you like crammed together. All three of us okay. crammed together. So you have to do it one at a time. Okay. And there's no cooling. So our body temperatures get up um, to about 101 as oh, we're doing wow. this. Yes, because it's just so hot inside the Soyuz itself. Yeah. And so because of that, that's why a lot of people don't like it. And then you're on the water and you're kind of moving around a little bit. So how did you, and when you're in that kind of situation, how do you muster the wherewithal to get through it and to make it happen? Well, I, I think um, we all knew what was supposed to happen. Alex, um, both um, Alex and Sasha had gone through this before. I was the new person. And they both really kind of rallied around me and got me through it as well. Because it's, it's really hot and the, it's, it's, not, it's not anything that's so difficult. You just become so, exhausted from the heat that you have to basically work, 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 take a break, then work, 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 take a break, work, 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 take a break. And Sasha kind of got me through that cadence of work hard, work hard, work hard, okay, take a, a short break. And then once we were all suited up, we have to open the hatch and then we climb out of the Soyuz. And how was that? Oh, you basically fall backwards, you blow up your suit and you're you're cool. You're finally, you're just happy at you're that done. point. Yeah, you're just happy. And how, does the, how long does this whole exercise last? Oh, it's about two and a half hours. Oh, wow. Yes, because we each have to change out of um, Is our that, what's suit. That? Oh, what, that's what, what, actually the underwater um, experiment that NASA does. And that's the NEMO experiment. It's called the NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations. And you live underwater in a habitat for about, in my group, we stayed underwater for about nine days. And so you do you practice. You stayed underwater for nine days. Yes, in a little module, a little habitat that's similar to what you would see on the space station, about the same size, with six people. There were six of us. It was me and five guys. Yeah, Jeanette and five <laughs> Not fun. So how big was it, like, from this, use this stage as an example. Okay, so um, it was probably maybe two more platforms longer than this, but that was it. And we had a wet room where you have to change out into your scuba gear, come in, and then you have the kitchen and sort of the living compartment. And then we had the bunk beds in the last part of the compartment. And then were you doing like experiments all day? We were. Do? We okay. were doing um, practice missions from the habitat um, to simulate if um, we landed on an asteroid, 
how would we extract samples from an asteroid? So we have to set up certain type of equipment that was developed to um, simulate how we would extract core samples from an, an asteroid. asteroid. Yes. That's pretty amazing. Okay. Yes. And so we have the Mark V helmet on and the wetsuit, and we kind of simulate spacewalks on the bottom of the ocean. And we were only about 72 feet um, on the bottom, and we lived at about 50 feet. So our compartment was on a little platform 50 feet below the surface, and then you leave that, and you're about 70 two feet below the surface. Wow. So what was, what was the hardest training of all? Uh, so I'd have to say, um, for me, you know, as an ASCAN, I think the hardest training was the um, neutral buoyancy lab, where you have to do the practice spacewalks. And that's partly because you it's practice very- Practice spacewalks. So you're yes. practicing getting out of a vehicle and actually walking in space. Exactly. To everybody. Okay. And, and what we do at um, Johnson Space Flight Center is we simulate that using a huge pool. The pool is about 100 feet wide, um, 200 feet long, and 40 feet deep. And we have a mock above the main truss of the space station. And so we don the spacesuit, which is about 300 pounds. And we have a bunch of divers. The space that, suit itself is 300 pounds. Yes. Okay. And so they have to make it neutrally buoyant, which so space, simulates zero it's gravity. A, it's the weight of a man and a half, basically. <laughs> yes, I mean, just exactly. To, wow. Um, okay. But what they do is they make you neutrally buoyant. So you shouldn't ever really fill the 300 pounds. As the suit starts taking on water, they kind of change your way out a little bit to make you, um, to get you back to neutral buoyancy. There's your mom, by the way. Yes, that's it. That was okay. my mom. Yes. Sorry, go ahead. And, yeah. and so um, we, we do, we get into the suit. Um, they lower us into the water and we have a bunch of divers that help us. But we do that for about six hours. You're in the suit for six hours. And it's very physical and it becomes, um, because it, it exhausts you, it becomes very mental as well. So you have to make it through the, to the end of the six hours. And after doing it so many years, you, you kind of get used to the six hours in the suit underwater and you only have 32 ounces of water and you have a mag. And I always, I love telling the story because kids get a kick out of it. Do you know what a mag is? Does anyone know what a mag is? You guys can't guess. So we wear it under, our, under the um, space suit. It's a maximum absorbency garment, so it's a diaper. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. <laughs> and so, but you do that because you're in the water for six hours and you have 32 ounces of water and that's it. And you have to, um, you know, because there's so many resources that are used during these events, you have to. So you're get basically as much wearing a diaper the whole time if you're speaking to them. Okay. No, not right now. Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, when you're in the pool, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So for six hours. Six hours. Yes, that's part of the uniform. So and yeah. it's necessary. So uh, people always ask about the diaper. Where does it come from? But that's where it comes from. Oh, that's. Yeah. And so what was, you said it was, you said it is the most difficult of your training. What, why yes, is that? Yes, only because it's very physical. Because when you're in the pool and, you, and the suit starts taking on water, you start feeling some of that 300 pound. So that's why we do a lot of weight lifting and things like that. But for the endurance, we do a lot of cardio work too. So CrossFit is great. You know, I do a lot of um, cross training and, and crab classes and things like that as well. So, so. how much, how much? workout do you do? Like, how far can you run? How far do you typically run? Well, some do people do? do marathons. I don't do marathons just yet. I, I really um, haven't signed up to do any of those. But, I mean, on a given day, you could do four and a half miles and then go do some weightlifting or do push-ups. And you really have to keep your body in shape and strong enough to do the spacewalk. So in 2017, last mm -hmm. year, yep. you were selected for the International Space Station after how many years of training? 
And so um, I had been training since February 2016. So you yes. had some serious training. Two years, yes. Yeah, yeah going on for years. that. Um, you were picked for, well, describe your emotions when you found out yeah. that you were going to be chosen. Well, I was in Russia doing language immersion at the time. So I was um, living in Moscow for five weeks and going through the language immersion. And about the um, fourth weekend, the chief of the office at the time, Chris Cassidy, sent me an email. Um, because he was on his way to Japan and he thought he'd send me an email before he went over there and asked if I wanted to um, have the mission 5657 to the International Space Station. And of course, when I saw that email, I said, you know, I was going to send back a note. Oh, no, that's okay. That, no, of course, I was excited, extremely yeah. excited. Um, and I thank Chris. And um, that began a whole new um, training um, over in Star City and then in Germany and Japan. And what were you doing in Germany and Japan? Well, one of the things we do is we um, take all of their classes on the European module that's aboard the space station called the Columbus. And the same for the Japanese module called the GEM. And what we do is we can either train to be a user of their systems in their module, an operator or a specialist. And what I did was um, the specialist training, you have a lot more, you have about two more weeks of training in Japan. And so for both the Columbus and the uh, Japanese module, I trained to become a specialist on their modules. So you were also making history. You were going to become, believe it or not, the first African-American on the space station. There has not been one for long term to, okay. to stay, an African-American astronaut to stay long term. That's correct. You That's were going correct. to be that person. Yes, we've had Mae Jemison. We have people like Al Drew, Leland Melvin. They all visited the space station. Um, well, Mae Jemison didn't visit the space station, but they've all been in space. But it was for a short time. And so what I would have done was um, actually live aboard the space station for about four, five to six months. And the reason you were saying would have, for people who don't know this, is that in early last year, you were pulled from yes. a June four months hence launch. Yes. And um, talk about, you know, typically a, a being pulled at that late date would have to be, for health reasons, something pretty obvious. Yeah. But that wasn't the case. No, that, that was not the case. And so, you know, for reasons that um, I can't, I, I don't really understand at this point. Um, my management, it was a management decision at the time. And, you know, one of the things I can say is that we're still working through that. Um, there have been um, uh, several things that have happened um, on the space station recently. So I really haven't found out much information lately. And so we're still kind of working through those issues and figuring out what's going to happen for the future. And at this time, I, I really don't have a planned uh, mission yet. Um, and we'll see what happens in the future. And so that, create, that generated headlines, I mean, and, and all sorts of yes. um, questions about whether this was, their race was a motive, whether the Russians um, had something to do with mm -hmm. it. What was your take on all of that? Well, uh, you know, one of the things is, um, that I always put out there is that my work with the Russians was always um, um, very friendly, very warm, going through all of the training to the end, even in Baikonur, all of the things that we did out there was, um, it was phenomenal training. Uh, I mean, I can't say anything negative about the training that I got there. So I wouldn't say that the Russians had anything to do with this. Uh, I can't say 100% that no, they didn't. In my opinion, I don't think that they did. Um, whether race played an issue, I don't know what's in the mind of other people, and I'd, I can't say that, oh, definitely, or anything like that. So I'm not quite sure of the reasons myself. Um, I, do think, I do see a lot in the media of people speculating, but 
you know, it is, it is all speculation at this point. And how are you dealing with this internally, emotionally? How are you getting through this? Well, I'll say that initially it was tough, and because I was in Baikonur when this happened. I was in Star City, and then I went on to Baikonur after that. So it was really tough dealing with it at that point because I really didn't know what happened. And one of the nice things, though, when I got back was the number of people who came to me and they actually thought that I was sick or something happened to me. And so that was their first concern. And then, you know, their um, not just sympathy, but their um, desire to help and try to um, figure out what happened. Um, it, it is um, a really, it was really a bad thing that happened. But the friends that showed up and have really been helping me, has been, it's been tremendous. So what is your, I know you're still in it, you, mm -hmm. you're, not, you're not looking back yet, but what's your, what, what kind of advice or takeaway do you have when you're, you're dealt such a setback? Your dream was there, you did everything you were supposed to be doing, and then the rug was pulled out from under you. How do you cope? Well, I think I'm talking about it, like even in this environment and letting little girls know that, hey, you know, things happen, but how you deal with it is important. And going through this doesn't um, change the things that I was able to accomplish. Um, it does make me um, want to coach little girls, especially on, you know, you can go on merit for a long time, but understanding the culture of any organization that you're in is gonna come, to, come into play at some point. And so trying to figure out how I can contribute and try to help other girls and women not let this happen to them. And what are the things can you, that you can do? And you know, thinking about the mistakes that I may have made and how do I mitigate those and what advice would I give other people going through What advice stuff. would you give to? Well, one of the things like, you know, things like that, you know, make sure you have, a, you do everything to an excellent level, make sure your merit is very high, but at the same time, understand the culture that you're working in. Because every culture is different. Going from Ford Motor Company to the CIA to NASA, every culture is very different. And you have to acclimate to that. And you, if you come in quickly and you don't understand, you can make mistakes. Um, but the culture isn't, it shouldn't be the end all and be all. You have to understand it though. And that's um, one of the big pieces of advice. Um, like my niece going to school and she's wondering why, why is this happening? Why is that happening? And you know, uh, helping her to understand that, you know, sometimes people aren't nice and things don't go the way you want, but how you handle it is gonna be the most important thing. And you still hope to do a, to be deployed? I, I'm, I am still hoping. I'm, I'm back in the Corps. Um, once I returned in January, I went back to recertify in the T-38. I had been out of the jet for over 45 days. Tell everybody what a T-38. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, the T-38 jet is a supersonic trainer jet that the um, Navy and the Air Force use to train their pilots. And because I'm a backseat, the front seat pilots help train me to work with them, um, not just in a high threat environment, but also we use it as crew resource ma uh, management. So how do we work together as a crew? Um, all of this should translate to how we work together in space. So just one other question before we go into the, um, a little bit more broadly about NASA. You, um, it, what you do is extremely dangerous, <laughs> let's yes. be real. Mm -hmm. I mean, people have been killed and will be killed in manned space um, travel. Yes, um, I agree. How do you deal with that risk? 
Well, I think understanding what you're getting into first is, is of utmost importance. I mean, sometimes I, you can see people walk into things and totally not understand what they're getting into. But understanding the risk and then mitigating that through training and understanding. Um, one of the things we recently had happen was um, depressurization of the space station. And that's one of the emergency procedures that we train at nauseum on how to handle a rapid depress aboard the space station. We train heavily on how to handle a fire aboard the space station. We have uh, ammonia in the U.S. segment, and so that can actually enter into the cabin, and because it's anhydrous uh, ammonia, um, it, you know, it can be deadly. So we train on what we, do, we would do if we had ammonia leak into the space station, and we train those um, over and over and over again. So it's muscle memory pretty much once and if it happens. And that's what happened in August. You saw the training snap in and these guys got to work and they found the, the leak and they isolated it to one of the Soyuz. So speaking of, of, um, of issues, the, the, on October 11th, there was the accident when a Soyuz um, mm -hmm. failed to launch. Yeah. Two, what was it, two and a half minutes after liftoff? Mm -hmm. um, the astronauts basically had to bail. Um, and I have to ask you what it's like to fall 31 miles wow. after your rocket fails. I'm, so I haven't talked to Nick Haig since he returned from that, but the, the great thing is that that is another thing that the Russians train you to do at nauseum. And a lot of our um, training has to do with going through procedures, but also mainly executing emergency procedures when it's necessary. So his training snapped in, and they were able to get out of there in time and survive. But that can happen anytime. That's why we train the way we do. Um, it's a, it is a risky job, but I think working at the CIA can be risky too. And so any job can you be. You mean the job that you don't want to talk about? The one well, any of these jobs can be risky. Okay. And so you really have to understand what you're getting into. Yeah. And through understanding and training is, is how we mitigate the, the problems and, and the worry. So I want to pause now and remind everybody that we'd love to take your questions, write them on cards. We'll have people um, picking them up as I continue with some questions. And um, we also have, you can, um, if you're tweeting, the hashtag, of course, is Smart Women, Smart Power, or at CSIS Aerospace. So generally, um, can you give us your vision of how space travel is going to be in the future, manned and unmanned, moon and Mars? I mean, what's going to take us through the next mm -hmm. five to 10 years? Okay, so one of the things is right now we don't launch from the U.S. soil, but hopefully over the next two to three years we'll launch from the U.S. soil. We'll have either a Boeing or a SpaceX launching and going only to the space station. And so these are basically, these are private sector solutions to the fact that we lost the shuttle, or the shuttle was... Exactly, but you know, we had to do that because we had the Constellation program going as well, and it's really hard to fund both programs. So we knew that um, we were gonna retire the shuttle and something else bigger was gonna come along. Okay. And what that is is the Orion program. And so the Orion's job is to take us to the moon, and hopefully in the future to Mars. But in the meantime, we need to develop an engineering test bed to get to Mars. So everything that we do at the moon all of the technologies that we develop, all of the things that we find out about the human body and how it survives in low, um, lower gravity. Uh, everything that we find out, radiation-wise as well, all of that information will help get us to Mars. So we're planning to have a gateway platform that would go around the moon, and basically we would launch the Orion from Earth on the SLS, which is our, should be our larger than Saturn V rocket to get us to uh, the moon. 
docked to the gateway, have astronauts stay there for months maybe. But everything that we find out from the astronauts working there on the surface and working on the platform, the gateway, would translate to everything that we can do to get to Mars. Okay, so, so tell these guys, how long will it take, does it take to get to the moon and how long does it take to get to Mars? Well, that's, um, it depends on the rocket that we have. So right now we have the SLS. And what we're planning now is a couple of, um, uh, hopefully we'll have EM-1. That's going to be a mission that would go around the moon, and that should be in 2022. And then shortly after that, we should have a manned mission. And by 2025, we're going to give up the space station. We're going to actually um, stop funding it through federal funds, and hopefully it'll go commercial. And so once we do that, we will, we'll just be sending astronauts to the moon and staying on the moon. Um, for getting to Mars, um, I can't give you a, a, a good idea of what, how long it would take to get there. It depends on the gravity assist and the alignment uh, to get there, but, and then the propulsion system that we would develop. Great. So right now they're looking at eight to nine months, but who knows what, if we develop a new propulsion system, it may take shorter time than that. Great. Yes. Um, and I wanted to note that Director Gordon is backstage. <laughs> watching. Um, and for online um, questions, you can submit your online questions. Just go to aerospace.csis.org slash questions. Um, what, is, what are your thoughts regarding Space Force? And I, I think this... <laughs> well, uh, so from everything that I've heard about it, it's um, basically going to be like the Space Command, which is in the Air Force. And so there may not be a, a plus up of people, maybe it's just transferring the Space Command to be the next segment of the military, um, the Space Force. So I don't really have an opinion on it yet. I haven't seen any real outline plan for what it would be like and what they would do and how they would, um, would they replace the astronauts? How, how do we work together to do that? So I don't know, have a lot of information on that just yet. Um, in general, though, what do you think of militariz militarization of space? Well, um, so that is a great question. Um, and you know, one of the questions about um, denuclearization and putting weapons in space and things like that, I'm not necessarily a big fan of putting weapons in space. That, to me, is, um, is uh, you know, it's the start of something else. You know, I think denuclearizing everyone uh, kind of stands down. But if you start doing that, everyone's going to want to um, have that status symbol of having something in space as well. So militarization of, the, of uh, space, I can't say that I'm for it. And I don't know what that would look like in the future. Yeah. Great. So here's a question from the audience. As, an, as a woman, were there any special challenges you encountered? And does being a woman give you any superpower slash assets as an astronaut or scientist? Well, I would say that most women have a superpower in that they are very resilient and persistent. And being very persistent and going after your goals and asking for opportunities. And that's the thing I think, you know, as a female, I think I've done an okay job of in asking for opportunities to go do things. And so as a, I think a lot of women have um, a resiliency as well. So when it gets tough, you don't just give, give up, up and go away. You just work harder and you make sure that you achieve the goal that your colleagues are, are whatever goal they're making, you're making the same goal. Great. Yeah. 
This is a good one. What's harder to learn, thermodynamics or Russian? <laughs> I'd have to say Russian. <laughs> I'm still not speaking it fluently, but that's because I haven't um, been over there in about eight months. So right. yeah, you don't use it, you lose it. How many times did you apply for the astronaut corps? Well, I was one of the very lucky ones. I only applied once. But I, um, my advice to people who haven't applied and they want to is that you, you have to go ahead and apply. If you don't apply, you can't play in the game. Even if you don't get that job, um, it is an experience to at least apply and see what happens. And that's what I did. So this is one from one of our younger audience members. What do you do in your rocket? Um, and I would probably add to that, what do you do in the space station? Yes. So in the um, Soyuz, I was the left seat person. So our commander in the center, he basically had the command of the, the Soyuz. And whatever he asked me to do, that's what I would do. He's monitor the pressure, I would monitor the pressure. Open the valve, I would open the valve. So you're basically following procedures inside the Soyuz. When you live on the space station, you are the research scientist for you're their hands and their eyes. And so you're conducting all of their research. One of the other things is that um, as a person aboard the space station, you're an experiment in and of yourself as well. So you gotta figure out, um, you know, there's a lot of samples taken from you, a lot of blood samples, and they want to look at how your muscles um, behave in space with training, with uh, a lot of resistive training. So you do a, quite a few things aboard the space station. So this is from one of our audience members who said, sorry, I had to leave early, but did you know that an African-American engineer was one of the chief designers of the spacesuit for the first moon mission? No, I did not know that. Um, and I would read the rest of this, but I, I can't read the writing. Okay. But that's an interesting, we'll, look, an we'll interesting check that out. Yes. Maybe we can Google that, somebody. Um, how do you feel about investment in commercial space flight? And, and would you like to operate in non-NASA rocket spacecraft? Well, I, I really like the work that um, the commercial entities are doing and, um, and pushing the envelope and developing new things. So I, I think it's a great idea to have commercial involved in um, anything that we do in space and to help keep, um, one of the things is giving opportunities to non-astronauts to fly into space as well. So I think the work that they're doing is gonna go uh, a long way, especially once we stop funding the space station around 2025, I think they'll, they'll take it on pretty far. Um, this has a number of questions, I guess, I think also from one of our younger audience members. What was the hardest part about training? We talked a bit about that. Um, did you meet any good friends while training? But it's an interesting question. Like, do you, what kind of bond do you create with fellow astronauts during this? Well, it, it, it does become difficult to make um, strong bonds with other astronauts, but you do. You end up making It becomes difficult. Well, it's only because everyone's off training and everyone's doing their own thing and they have to get you know, a certain amount of flying in, they have to um, get a certain amount of rushing in, and a lot of the guys have their families with them in Houston. And so one of, one of the guys that I did become um, close with was Jack Fisher, who recently left and he went to the Space um, Command in Colorado. He and his wife, um, we would regularly um, go to dinner and happy hour and chat. And so you end up, we ended up, um, we did our training for robotics together as well in Canada. So through all of these, the training that we ended up doing together, that's how we became friends. But then there's other people like even Sergei Prokopiev 
when um, I would be in Star City and we're training and living there, he would invite us to different parties and things like that. And so there's lots of ways to get, you know, especially as a crew, you end up bonding very tightly. Um, being in water survival or winter survival, you end up becoming very close. And then even some of the trainers, uh, I've become very good friends with a lot of our trainers as well. Because it would seem you'd have to have some kind of bond, if you're particularly when you're in difficult situations, or you need to develop that level of trust, and yet yes. you're also kind of all on your own exactly. training systems. Yeah. And that's, that's how Jack and I became friends, going to Canada together and doing all of our robotic skills together. Do you believe aliens exist? And what is your basis for believing well, or not believing? Well, when I think about our solar system, we're one solar system in this huge galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. But we're one of billions of galaxies. And there's so many galaxies out there. So I would have to guess that there has to be life somewhere else in one of these other galaxies. Um, landing on Mars, what would that entail? Um, what, would that, what would the atmosphere be like, again, from one of our younger folks here? Well, it's going to be different than landing on the moon, because they have um, one third of the gravity that we have on Earth. So it's going to be a little bit different. Um, so, uh, start with just climate and temperature. And well, see, that's the thing. They don't really have an atmosphere the way we do have, have here on Earth. So we would have to synthesize all of that. So landing on, the, on, the, on Mars, we would have to be in our suit. We have to um, provide our own pressure. We have to provide our own oxygen. We have to provide our own uh, carbon dioxide removal system. So it would be like um, being inside the spacewalk suit. So you really have to be contained inside of this. And then there's a lot of dust. And the dust can get into different systems and follow them. And so you want to be careful that you don't destroy your only spaceship, which is your suit, mm -hmm. uh, if you're walking on the surface. So you have to really develop um, special systems just for landing on the moon and living there, on uh, Mars. Mars. And the same thing for the moon, though. You have to develop different systems of how we would handle that. So that's part of the job of going back to the moon and developing all these concepts of how we would, if you had to live on the moon, how would we, and even just walking on the moon, how would we do it better than what we did before? There was a lot of, um, there's a thin layer of regolith on the moon and it's very, it's a fine dust and it gets into all the different systems. And so you want to try to protect your, your ship, your suit, mm -hmm. and um, the lunar module that you're in. So you, you I think what we're going to end up finding is that we're going to do things differently than what we did in the early Apollo days. And we're going to develop, hopefully we can de develop better systems and, and more permanent systems, certainly, yes. on the moon. Exactly. More permanent systems, and even on the gateway platform. You know, we do have an issue with um, radiation. How do we protect from that? So we may have to have different types of suits that would have, um, you know, special material right. that would protect us from radiation. So there's a lot of things to think about when you start thinking about getting, walking on Mars. You know, I start thinking of the moon initially, of how, we, how are we going to do that on the moon? How are we going to do it better than what we did before? What kind of lunar um, buggy will we have? You know, the, um, the different types of wheels and things that I've seen people develop and different rovers that I've seen develop. You know, which one will we end up using and which one will actually be the best? Um, and then we could take that and What's use it on Mars. What's the coolest rover you've seen? Well, so we've had, um, we've had different ones that had um, a spacesuit attached to the back where you can, from your rover, you can get into a spacesuit and do a, a spacewalk from that rover. 
And so that's one of the, uh, we used it in a program called Desert Rats. So very, um, very nice rover that we've, um, was developed at Johnson Space Flight Center. I'm not sure if we'd use something like that on the moon this time, um, but hopefully we'll develop systems that will um, improve our experience there on the moon the initial time and improve that and then we could use all of those systems for Mars. Does that appeal to you personally? It does. Well, you know, Going just, to moon and Mars? Yes, because we, you know, we, we went to the moon um, all of six times and um, you know, what did we find out? You know, it's, it's kind of um, like coming to the United States and visiting several places. You know, have we really explored it? Have we really exploited it and know it so well that you know, we can live there and we can do other things that we, you know, extract resources if we, we needed to. So I would like to go back and investigate it a little more, try to find out, you know, how did the moon end up there? What happened to our planet and the moon? How did it get into that position? Mm -hmm. What pummeled it? Where did all of those pockmarks, all the mm -hmm. impact craters on the moon, where did they come from? So if we can study those impact craters, figure out what hit the moon, how it got into that position, you know, maybe we can mitigate things that could happen in the future and, you know, help better help, you know, what's going on here on Earth as well. I love that. Um, what recommendations would you give to an 11-year-old girl who wishes to become an astronaut for NASA like you? My advice would be to uh, continue to do well in school, um, excel in the STEM areas, and if you can, um, achieve higher degrees, but also have a complete life. You know, go camping, do those things, be very athletic in these things. Um, learn another language. And you know, once you've done all these things, make sure you have a career that you absolutely love. And the only thing that can take you from that career would be getting in a, into the astronaut corps. And then once you start applying for the astronaut corps, if you don't get it the first time, keep applying. Continue to apply. And play but you game. have to get an undergrad, you have to study science and yes. math. Yes, I would say science, technology, engineering, mathematics, or even um, you know, becoming a medical doctor as well is um, another route that a lot of people took. And that is included in the STEM, but um, I wanna make sure that you know that being an engineer is a great route, being a, a medical doctor, a biologist, a chemist, um, all of these fields are great, or even becoming a fighter pilot yourself. Hmm. That works. Yes. <laughs> um, online. Question, does your training prepare you for long duration flight around the moon? Yes, it does. And, for, um, and, for, and describe that to our general audience here, what that means. Well, I think um, the way that we were training for the Soyuz is that, and we were training for, um, we, if we were on the space station and there's six of us, we all had to be um, certified in Russian, certified in robotics, certified in um, being able to do a spacewalk. And that all means that you have to, condition your body for doing the spacewalk. You have to practice the robotics. Um, we're not, we do have data from the Apollo era of what happened with the astronauts then, but we still have a lot of unknowns. So the training that we're doing now is really just, you know, we're training for the unknown and whatever may, ha may come at us in the future. Um, we may find out something new on the moon that we didn't know before. Right. Um, radiation wise, um, that could be an issue and we have to train differently for that. So it, oh, this is also an online question. At today's rate of progress, who will win the race to Mars, US, China, or SpaceX? <laughs> well, with the government, um, things do go a little slower, but I do think that um, 
the concern for safety is very important. So I, things may go a little slower with the government, but I do think it, it will be very as safe as we can get it. Um, SpaceX, I do think that they care about safety as well, um, and they are moving at a, a more, probably at a, a faster pace. Um, I have, you know, Elon Musk says he's going to do something, and, you know, majority of the time he does it. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't know who will get there first, but I do know that working with NASA to get there will be the safest, safest route, I believe. It'll be more safe than SpaceX, is that what you're... Uh, well, I wouldn't, I, I can't say um, safer than uh, SpaceX or safer than this other company. I do know that NASA has um, a safety record, and I, I do know that they will probably take longer to make sure that the safety... Um, regulations and everything that um, needs to happen will be in place. So I, I don't want to say that it'll be safer than SpaceX because I'm not sure what they'll end up doing. Doing. Yeah. Another good question from online. What popular movie or TV show best depicts what astronauts actually do during a mission? <laughs> What's the most realistic kind of movie or TV show you've seen? Well, that's interesting. Um, well, I, I guess um, what I liken it to is that you're living in space with friends and you're conducting experiments. You're basically the hands and the eyes for uh, every um, uh, principal investigator that has an experiment aboard the space station. And you're living there as well. All your food is kind of uploaded through um, some visiting vehicles. So you get a lot of logistics, you get your clothes, you have to exercise. So, you know, it could be like living in a dorm almost, <laughs> you know, so I don't think, I, I don't know of a television show that, that can mimic it as, as well. I mean, you're living your life um, like in an apartment and you have a, your own little room. Um, food is up mass. The food that you like is up mass to you. You have to exercise. So I, I don't know what else to liken that to. Describe the food. Oh, the food is, um, it's like military food. A lot of it is irradiated um, for safety purposes. But in general, you can get a lot of the foods that you like. I mean, there are still, um, you have um, sweet and sour chicken or something like that. You have rice. Um, if you have one of the Japanese astronauts with you, you may have um, a curry dish, which is always nice. Um, a lot of the Russian food is, you know, jellied fish or something like that. But it's actually not that bad. Um, <laughs> What's your favorite? <laughs> oh, well, the, the Russian have, um, they have something like this Hungarian beef in a can. That is not bad. Okay. That, I, that I like. And then the European, if you have a European astronaut up there, you always have great food that's made by some chef, like some lemon pudding or something, or chocolate cake. So it's, it's not, the food isn't bad. It's like anything that you would eat here. So what cool experiments are going on on the space station now? Well, one of the things that um, I was involved in, in in looking at doing was um, a lot of the work with the um, uh, rodents, with the mice, and doing genetic studies. Um, so basically, you work with the little mice. And in Japan, you're just extracting a little blood from each mice, and you're sending it down, and you're doing the analysis on that and how they change in space. So that's one of the cool things. We have a combustion rack, we have a fluids rack, we have a magvec um, rack. We do um, several different experiments in the, in the European module right now. Uh, and then um, there were several other things that we were gonna do on each person. So looking at muscle um, density over the body 
and seeing how that changes as you're on, sp on the space station using a special tool that was developed. So in general, um, there's a ton of different experiments that's done on the body, but then there's a material science um, experiments that are conducted as well. So there's, there's tons of things going on right now that right. are a lot of fun. So as we close tonight, give us your vision slash argument for why manned space or woman, uh, man's uh, space travel is important. Uh, because there's a lot of people who think we should be spending that money here on Earth. Why is it important? Well, a lot of the research and things that are done are used to um, improve the life here on Earth as well. So everything that we do in space, can um, a lot of it can be applied to our life here on, on Earth. And the best example that I like is the development of these biophosphates for osteoporosis. So one of the things is being on an orbit, your bone density goes down because you're not, you don't have gravity as loading your bones. And now that we do all of this exercise and we do resistive exercise, we don't see that anymore. But there was also a drug that was developed to help mitigate that as well. And to so- help mitigate it in space. In space and on Earth though. Yeah. Here, okay. So some osteoporosis patients can benefit from that right now. And so that's one example of how all the things that we do for space can be applied here to make life better on Earth. But also as a, you know, the human race, I think that we are curious and we are explorers. We want to know more. We want to, you look up in the sky and you see the moon and you see all the splotches on the moon and try to figure out, well, what is that material? And then you, um, you send someone to the moon, they bring back samples and you realize that's basalt. And then you realize that there's um, something impacted the, the moon and what, what could that have been? Could that have happened here on Earth? So answering questions as a human being, I think um, the curiosity and finding out more, figuring out what happened to this planet and why did it evolve the way it did, is um, I think it's an age-old question that we've been asking ourselves for a long time as explorers. So I think that's always gonna continue and I don't think that um, it'll ever wane where people won't be curious about what's out there and what's, um, what can we do to get there? How do we get there? Well, Dr. Epps, we thank you for your service, for your curiosity, and we wish you all the best in the next exciting chapter of your life. Thank you, Nina. Thank you for listening. For more information, go to CSIS.org and subscribe to our podcasts.